Welcome. We are so thankful that you're joining us today on our podcast, Our Shared Humanity. Our show is sponsored by the Healing and Reconciliation Institute, and also through the donations and support of our listeners. Our show amplifies and celebrates the personal stories and teachings of healing and reconciliation in order to invoke our shared humanity. Each month, we welcome a guest to our show, where we learn more about their personal commitment to the healing and reconciliation, the teachings that have helped them in their voyage, and the hopeful stories of healing and reconciliation circles that are happening all over our country and the world. We welcome you to join us by subscribing to our podcast and also check out our organization's website, healingreconciliationinstitute.org. Please also consider making a donation when you listen in to sustain our work and honor the contributions of elders who have shared their teachings with us all. But we've seen it all before and now we know we can change it cause that's why we were born. We know we are the ones that we have been waiting for. We are the ones grandma has been praying for. So rise up. Today, we welcome Alexis Bunton. Alexis, who's Elliot Yupik, has served as a manager, consultant, and applied researcher for indigenous, social, and environmental programming for over 15 years. After receiving a BA in art history at Dartmouth College, Alexis returned to Alaska, where she worked at the Alaska Heritage Institute and the Alaska Native Heritage Center in programming. Subsequently, Alexis earned a PhD in cultural anthropology at UCLA and has served as the project ethnographer for the Intellectual Property Issues in Cultural Heritage Project and as a senior researcher at the Frameworks Institute. And she's also one of the advisors with the Bioneers. Alexis, we are so thrilled to have you today. Welcome to our show. Great to be here. I, I, I just want to start by just, just saying thank you for, for coming. And, you know, as we shared, as we were discussing, um, you know, listeners, uh, Alexis and I, I've, I've had a chance to get to hear many of the um, many of the projects Alexis has been involved in. So Alexis, today, as you come on, um, Brianna and I are just so excited to hear a little bit more about a specific project you're working on involving rights of nature. And I'm looking forward to hearing more about it from you today. Um, where would you like to start with, with what you're um, working on? Yes, so um, I co-direct the Indigeneity program with Bioneers along with Kara Romero. And among the things we do, we do these things called, we call them catalytic initiatives, game changers, right? And we see the concept of rights of nature as a game changer for our planet, for people, for animals, for ecosystems. And this is the idea that nature is a living thing and it should have inherent rights. Well, I know Brianna is going to have some follow-up questions there. Brianna, what do you think about this idea that nature has inherent rights? I think that is an incredibly powerful um, reorientation to our relationship to nature. And um, I'm curious, Alexis, like when, when you bring this concept up of rights of nature, what kinds of responses do people have in hearing that term? It's really kind of amazing, actually. When you say rights of nature to anybody, it doesn't matter who they are or where they come from or what their background is. People seem to just get it. Just, it seems head bonk obvious to people that nature having rights is a good concept. It's almost uh, like apolitical. It crosses every boundary with people. People just love the idea of nature having rights. 
Yeah, I mean, it feels so intuitive, and yet it is a radical idea to bring that into our our legal systems. And I'm curious, you know, as you've been working on this project, what are you specifically working on, and how, like, what has been the response um, in your efforts? Well, let me take a step backwards, actually, because I want to talk about rights of nature as movement. And rights of nature, the concept is inherently indigenous. Of course, our tribes uh, think of nature as a living being that has a right to thrive and exist. But in the Western sense, it really got started in the around 2007 or 2008, just before Ecuador wrote rights of nature into its constitution. People in law or in non-Indigenous societies will say that it really, the idea really started taking hold in the 70s when a legal scholar wrote about it. But no, it's been around, the idea has been around since time immemorial because it is an inherently Indigenous concept. And so the special initiative that I'm working on through Bioneers is supporting federally recognized tribes in the U.S. to be able to build the capacity to explore building rights of nature into their policy, tribal constitutions, tribal law, customary law, if they want to. We want to support them in organizing, financing, uh, paying for the legal advice to explore this if this is right for them. What, what do you think, you know, as you build this work and as people are able to build this into their constitutions, what might be possible? Um, what, what's the shift in our, the impact that really, like, truly honoring rights of nature might bring for us and communities? Well, currently, nature is considered in terms of property as something you can buy and sell. But if nature is thought of as a living entity, there are different ramifications, theoretically, in terms of how the law could be enforced. Rights of nature law is preemptive. It thinks about potential damage in the future before it's done, whereas current environmental law is really oftentimes after the fact. In rights of nature law, you can, for example, get restitution for nature to be able to regenerate itself instead of just payment for losses. It's a completely different paradigm. And so when we think about rights of nature law as being upheld by U.S. federally recognized tribes, it's important to understand that U.S. federally recognized tribes have a sovereign nation-to-nation -nation relationship with the U.S. federal government. So people, you or other people listening may have heard about different cities or boroughs adopting rights of nature laws. Um, I think Denver did a couple of years ago. And it's not really, at this time, it's not been very enforceable because let's say if a municipality adopts a rights of nature law and it's challenged, they have to go up through the court system and it's likely to be shot, shot down before it gets anywhere near the Supreme Court. And so it's not super enforceable. But with tribes, if they have rights of nature laws and there's a challenge to it, it's gonna go straight to the Supreme Court level. It's not gonna go up that daisy chain of of courts and tribes as sovereign entities they have sovereign immunity so again this is all theoretical <laughs> and has not been tested in court but with sovereign immunity means protection from lawsuits so let's say a city adopted rights of nature and they're being threatened by 
like a multinational corporation that wants to frack and ruin our groundwater. Let's pretend it's Monterey where Maya and I live. <laughs> um, that multinational corporation, you know, they lobby and they're in bed with the state government, with the federal government, with our federal lawmakers. Um, so it's likely that we're going to lose. But um, if it was a tribe, if we were living on trust reservation land and they had rights of nature law, that multinational corporation, that pretend multinational fracking corporation, they can't sue the tribe because of sovereign immunity. Wow. Wow, that's incredible that um, finding this path through and in a way that also empowers sovereign tribes with something that is indigenous in its basic roots, right? I'm curious, like with all of this and kind of in the context of HRI as well, you know, what does healing and reconciliation have a place in the rights of nature? I think so, definitely. Uh, because remember, I was talking about when we think of nature as property and nature is damaged under the current environmental law, that damage is just paid for. It's like, here's your money. I ruined your land. That's the simple layperson's way of putting it. But if that land is protected under rights of nature and it's violated somehow, if it were to go through a, a legal process that considers rights of nature, the entity that does the damage they have to pay for the work that it takes to bring it back to being a whole healthy living ecosystem again with the plants and the animals and also for it to be able to be regenerative for it to be able to continue to evolve and i think that's what healing and reconciliation is about i mean the metaphor it's not a metaphor it's the idea of becoming whole and being able to move forward in the way that you are supposed to in a healthy way. And so it's very much the same as healing and reconciliation, I think. What do you think? Well, I, I was, I had an interesting experience a couple years ago. Um, this is Maya speaking. And, um, you know, for the listeners, we had a project in Taos in 2018. And when the indigenous women from New Zealand, the Maori, were getting together with some of the women from some of the tribes in New Mexico, there, the focus was on indigenous healing at the same time was the conversation about rights of nature that was happening hand in hand. And, and for me as a non-Indigenous person, I just, I didn't even think, it was like the, a moment for me of recognizing that the way we treat our bodies is the way we treat our earth. And I didn't ever really, really understand that healing meant both. Absolutely. I guess I, I guess it was kind of implicit in my mind and I didn't know how to translate that. Thank you. And I, I think that one of the, 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 the inspirations of Rights of Nature that again, Indigenous led across the world is that we, that this design of this idea that the tribes lead the way, the federally recognized tribes lead the way on these laws, it may not be tested yet here in the United States in the way that we hope to, but it is definitely um, precedent in other countries, right? Definitely. So for example, I already mentioned that Ecuador has adopted rights of nature into its constitution. And there's been a lot of efforts, a lot in Latin America, actually. I believe Colombia has recognized the rights of nature in some of their rivers. India has looked into it for the Ganges and Yamuna rivers. Forgive me if I butchered that pronunciation, but in New Zealand, the Te Urawewa Act, which was the result of an over 150 year long land claims battle uh, by a Maori tribe that resulted in the protection of Whanganui River and also a, for lack of a better word, one of their national parks being protected in perpetuity under rights of nature. And as part of that land claims act, the tribe was given however many 
hundreds, hundreds of millions of dollars. I don't know how much the amount was, but that was to make sure that their ancestral land base was protected. And the Parliament, New England, New Zealand Parliament, entrusted the tribe to know how to take care of that land because they had been living there for so many generations closely with the ecosystem. So that was really groundbreaking. And I want to say that was 2017 when that act went through. I heard when the New Zealand act went through, I believe I read that some of the language around it was around personhood of the river. Is that true? Yes. The Whanganui River was granted personhood, but the park, Te Urewewa, was under rights of nature. It's a little confusing and there is a distinction between rights of nature and personhood that's a little bit difficult to tease out. We've also seen this happen in the U.S. just last year, the not far from us, the Yurok tribe adopted personhood for the Klamath River, which has been very damaged by overfishing and damming upstream. The dam was removed, by the way, after a long battle by the tribe. <laughs> Yeah, amazing. I, that was sort of my question, like what has made the, these ones that have been successful, these movements, these initiatives, what has made them successful and how can the broader community also be a part of supporting these kinds of initiatives? I think success is a difficult concept to pin down. If you start from nowhere, if you start from ecological damage and pollution and pesticide and all the all the terrible things of the first success is obviously declaring personhood or giving legal rights to an ecosystem or a species but to me success is when this happens on a grand scale because we are in a time of global collapse as far as our ecosystem is involved. The Anthropocene is really not in a good place and we are writing ourselves extinct. Now, I don't care if we're extinct as a species, but I do love the planet. <laughs> so I would like us to not destroy it for everything else. And so to me, success is when we see rights granted to all of nature, bodies of water, our atmosphere, and I do, I'm an optimist, so I do think that we will get there. It may not be in my lifetime, but I think that we'll get there. We'll be forced to get there. So, and I think this, like I said, it's, this concept is so obvious to so many people. People like it regardless. And I think once we get more public awareness of what rights of nature is that will help to create the paradigm shift that we need to see in terms of practical law and implementation while at the same time finding ways for us to live as humans in more equitable and healing ways with nature and the animals and plants that we we share the planet with Alexa, so you know, it's stunning to me. I'm obviously a lawyer and I remember the first time I heard of rights of nature. Um, it reminded me a lot of the public welfare doctrine, which was another way that environmental uh, groups were pushing legal rights forward um, in terms of access, um, the, the rights for humans to access bodies of water in different states in the United States. And I really had appreciated um, that movement, but it also still felt so cubbyhole. And so one of the things that I just was stunned by uh, was just, first of all, the way you described it just taught me so much more. And I recognize that there's both like this deceptive simplicity to it, which is actually a quite 
kind of complex ecosystem. You had mentioned how to scale this. Uh, you said something earlier before we started recording about the chicken and the egg scenario, people policy, which comes first and, and how do we scale this? Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, I, I had, there is kind of a chicken and an egg thing going on with large social movements that also have to do with changing our policy. This is the idea of, I uh, collaborate with an attorney who has been very behind this movement. His name is Thomas Lindsay with the Center for Dem Democratic and Environmental Rights. And he has supported several boroughs and other communities in the U.S. in adopting rights of nature law from the ground up and through community lawmaking. And there have been times that these rights of nature laws have been challenged in courts and judges have basically thrown the book at him and threatened to disbar him. Thank God he's not disbarred but and can keep doing the work in this way. But that's because they don't have the pressure of the public to, to get these judges to think in a new way. And now if this was in the public narrative and people just generally knew about rights of nature and supported it, that's going to sway any kind of judge's judgment around rights of nature cases if they go to law. So people and the tide of public perception definitely impacts the way things go. And it could be people first. So we also need to just create a great greater public awareness campaign around this movement in general. Um, thank you, Alexis, for sharing all of your insights on this. And it, it's so important to just get the awareness out there because I know for me, like this concept of rights of nature, again, as it feels so intuitive, it's also just has not been a part of the wider dialogue around how to really uh, work with climate change and work with caring for our planet and shifting the exploitation. So thank you so much for sharing all of your insights on this. And I want to also just hear a little bit from you, like, what, do you have a personal connection to this work that motivates you and you know really brings you into this work in the way that you've been approaching it? Well, this might not be a very satisfying answer because I haven't really thought about how to articulate it, but I think I, that I was just generally raised to be in tune with nature in certain ways in a lot of our native communities, when we grow up and attend community events and things like that, we're taught to pay attention to the birds, for example. I can't tell you how many times I've been at an important meeting and maybe people have started squabbling and all of a sudden a raven comes down and flies in and interrupts everybody. I mean, that's an obvious example, but you know, I was raised to pay attention to everything happening all around me, not to be in my human Anthropocene bubble in my house, in my car, not paying attention to the trees, not paying attention to the animals, not paying attention to the weather. I mean, it shocked me actually when I first moved to Monterey it took me, I was disoriented and it took me a few years to figure out how to predict the weather. I thought everybody knew how to predict the weather. You just grow up, you look at what's going on with the clouds, the direction of the wind, and you, I would never watch the weather person. And so I guess when you are, when you are raised to be in tune with nature and its processes and, and, and systems, then you inherently care about it as part of yourself and you realize you are a part of it and that every part of it is living. There's something, even the things that we think of in English in the mainstream Western society as inanimate, it is animate. It does have a life of its own. 
even a rock, for example. And so to me, it's obvious that we should care about it and treat it more important than ourselves as humans, not and I think in the mainstream society, it's thought of, nature's thought of as an afterthought. It's there to serve us rather than we are there to serve it. Thank you so much for sharing that, Alexis. And it's just it's stunning, especially in the context of the times we're in. I think a lot of um, people that may have not had a relationship with nature had the opportunity last year because, you know, the resources, the ability to find um, well-being and, and balance to be able to to, to navigate um, all of the challenges that we've experienced in this last 12 months, actually anniversary is this week. It really, I felt like a lot of people found nature and fell in love with nature last year. And myself included being a mountain girl, I, I, I remembered um, the importance of, of, for my spirit of having that connection. So I just thank you for, thank you for sharing that, that beautiful share. And I, as we, as we close today, I just want to, Thank you, Alexis, for being able to navigate between your personal sensibilities and relationship with nature all the way up to strategies for um, federal immunity in the Supreme Court. <laughs> it's always it's always a treat to to um, to hear from you because your breadth of knowledge is is stunning. Uh, and I'm just once again humbled by what I've learned during today's call. Alexis, we are um, thankful that you came and joined us. Brianna and I, we're pretty excited to have you join us today and to our listeners out there. Um, you know, this is Alexis Bunton and thank you so much for coming. No, I'm just so appreciative of this conversation. And I mean, it's, I just feel it's so important and I love you bringing up Maya, just the the remembering of relationship to nature that many people had. I mean, I found myself going camping and going to rivers and hikes in places that usually didn't have many people around. And there were people um, who you could tell were like city folks who weren't used to, you know, the outdoor scene, but were just reveling in it. And I found that so beautiful and hopeful, like hopeful that maybe people are gonna remember nature and remember just the incredible impact that it has on our spirits to really notice and pay attention alexis like you named like how different it is when you orient yourself to really noticing even you know i'm i'm in the city in oakland and there are little birds on this one tree outside my house that i just am always taken by um, and when i notice it i notice how different i feel in my spirit here in the city as well. So I really appreciate that as well. And I'm really grateful, Alexis, that you're doing this work and that you're sharing this story. And I hope that our listeners will also explore this rights of nature orientation and how they might be able to bring some public pressure to really bring this into the mainstream conversation. Thank you, Alexis. Um, Brianna, do you have any final thoughts before we close? Thanks for having me. And if you don't mind me making a shameless plug, I think that the Healing and Reconciliation Institute is doing really, really important work that needs to be done. And I hope everybody explores it and checks out the website. With forgiveness as my bow and my prayers as my arrows, pull them back and let go. I watch them fly like sparrows have hope. This podcast is copyrighted 2021 Healing Reconciliation Institute, but please feel free to share uh, far and wide with those you care about who you want to begin the healing reconciliation journey with. 
Our music is by Lila June Johnson and Lauren Monroe. Technical direction by Alice McGowan. Administration support by Evelyn Alicia. Of course, our advisor circle and myself, Maya and Brianna as your hosts. Thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to provide a reciprocal gift of thanks for listening, please feel free to donate at our website on the Donate Now button and mention our guest in your donation form. Thank you so much for coming today. Mm-hmm.